Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. My name is Bill James. I'm an occupational therapist with the SSM Rehabilitation Network in St. Louis and editor of the Technology Special Interest Section Quarterly Newsletter. I will be your moderator for this call. On behalf of the TSIS leadership team, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the AOTA TSIS virtual chat. You can participate in the conversation by telephone and by computer. To listen live by telephone, you can call 724-444-7444 and enter call ID 138131. Uh, or you can find us on the web by visiting talkshoe.com slash tc slash 138131. Of course, if you are listening to this, you've already found a way to listen to the discussion, but we encourage you to actively participate by submitting your questions for our guests. You can type questions or comments into the chat section of our TalkShoe page, and we'll also open up the lines a bit later so that you can ask questions by phone. Uh, this evening, we will be discussing the topic of the September 2015 TSIS newsletter called Mobile Technologies as Vocational Supports for Workers with Cognitive Behavioral Challenges. If you would like to download the article, AOTA members can go to aota.org TSIS, look in the Resources section, and click Technology Special Interest Section Quarterly Newsletter. Our guest this evening is the author of that newsletter, Dr. Tony Gentry. Tony Gentry is an associate professor in the Department of Occupational Therapy at the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Allied Health Professions. He is the director of the Assistive Technology Center for Cognition Laboratory at VCU, where he's led extensive research focusing on the intersections of cognition, work, and technology, uh, specifically medical, or I'm sorry, mobile technologies. He has chaired the uh, Cognitive Special Interest Group of RESNA and served on the board of directors for the Brain Injury Association of Virginia. Dr. Gentry, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, great, and thank you again for being here and for taking the time out of your day to discuss really an outstanding TSAS quarterly newsletter article with us. Uh, your article covered a topic that you studied and written on extensively, the use of the iPod Touch as a cognitive support for people with uh, disabling conditions, in this case, uh, autism. Uh, you described the case study of Todd wonderfully in the paper, and I'm wondering if you can give us the big picture setup here. Uh, what was the context of your experience with Todd, and what was the, the larger study and research question you were pursuing? Todd was a young man who was a subject in a research study that had 50 participants altogether. Um, those were um, people with autism who were beginning a work placement supported by a job coach uh, funded by the state of Virginia. So um, the study was a randomized control trial um, with, a, with a delayed entry for the control group. So, and what we did in that case was a job coach would, would be working with a young with any, with a person who had autism 
going towards some kind of job placement, they contacted me and I consented the person into the study. So half of the people in the study, um, and the study was just reported out, by the way, in the Journal of Autism and Developmental uh, Disorders um, this past May. Um, anyway, the, the way the study worked, half the people in the study um, were given an iPod Touch, and I trained them in its use as an assistive technology on the job um, as they were beginning their job placement. Um, the other half of the group had to wait 12 weeks to get that same training in the same device. So the comparison was uh, comparing what happened in those first 12 weeks when one group had the device and training and how to use it on the job, and the other group was being supported um, only by a job coach. They were getting a job coach um, all the way through if they needed it anyway, but one group had the device and one did not. Um, so that was, that's the, that's the uh, study that this young man was in. And so let's stay big picture here for a minute. That larger study, I, I understand you said the results have just been published of the larger study. What was the, the big picture outcome there? Were the, were the cognitive support devices helpful? It, a lot of data came out of the study, quantitative and qualitative, but the take-home message from the study was that the people who received the uh, device up front and training in its use up front uh, reduced the need for job coaching support by around 45% as compared to those who received it later. So the device was, um, I, I think the state of Virginia was very happy because the device saved them a lot of money. And so uh, are there larger policy implications there? Uh, does the state of Virginia look at that and say, well, this is a, the type of program we ought to support uh, to keep costs down and to have better outcomes? I've, I've been really fortunate in that area because um, as a researcher, it's always wonderful when you can see something implemented in the real world that you've done. And um, the Department of Aging and Rehab Services, which is the vocational support agency in Virginia, um, we they we have been working we've worked together on several research studies over the years have a good track record together, and this particular study launched um, for them uh, a rationale and an opportunity to go for funding that has allowed us to train pretty much job coaches in every section of Virginia how to use these devices in the way that I was using them and also to fund having the devices distributed out to people who may benefit from them. So it's, it's just become over the last couple of years sort of a generic practice in the state of Virginia to implement this kind of intervention. That's amazing. Um, I think it's worth noting that your contributions here to the, to the science behind that decision uh, go far beyond just uh, this one TSIS quarterly and far beyond the, the one other paper that you cited. You have an extensive history of, of working with these kinds of devices and doing these kinds of studies, uh, so really ought to be commended for changing what practice looks like uh, across the entire state. Uh, and it's really the, the type of change I think we all strive for with an AOTA, a really good evidence-based uh, practice that's that's driven that actually drives policy by generating good evidence and practice. So thank you. <laughs> uh, You're welcome. For, for I think any of us who use a smartphone or a tablet know what what the potential is for these things. Um, the challenge I think is that the people who could most benefit from them, the ones for whom their lives could really be changed instead of just you know made more entertaining by one of these devices, those are the people who are least likely to have access to them. 
And I, th I think we need more research like this to support just just the amazing range of things that these devices can do to support people with disabilities. I, it, it's it's very hard. I know I know you know this too, to keep up with um, the evolution of these these tools and the and the the ways that they may or they may help people function in their everyday life. Um, I don't. I don't pretend to be able to keep up with it all. Um, I try to keep in, to have conversations like this with as many people as I can and share as we as we all learn together. But um, it's really been holding a tiger by its tail over the last decade while these things have just exploded and, and all the things they can do. So that, that brings up a really interesting point. Uh, and first of all, I want to say you're you're absolutely right. The, these devices have a ton of potential for everyone. You and I were discussing even before the call uh, that treating my, my phone as a cognitive aid has made me more productive uh, and in some ways potentially less productive, but uh, provides that, that support uh, to supplement prospective memory and uh, those reminders and step-by-step uh, -step how-to guides. Uh, and I think everyone stands to benefit, but you're absolutely right that people uh, with disabling conditions, particularly those who uh, cannot or more to the point do not uh, work or whose uh, chosen work doesn't have adequate accommodations, are the ones who can least afford and have the least ability to stay up on these types of technologies. Um, but, but to that larger point of you mentioned the rapid growth and how quickly these technologies have evolved. Uh, it's interesting that the iPod Touch was, uh, you make several points about it being such an interesting and at the time kind of unique uh, device. And I know you've worked extensively uh, with other PDA technologies going back a long way. At what point did you recognize the, the potential of the iPod Touch specifically or of you know, current smartphones, tablet devices? At what point did you say, boy, these can do more than what we're doing with them currently? The, um, the, the, thing, the reason I like the iPod Touch, and the iPod Touch, you know, has kind of been forgotten by Apple. They still sell it, but they haven't updated it for a while. Um, the reason I liked it are two, two reasons, really. One is it is now and has been for several years now the only pocket-sized uh, personal digital assistant on the market. So if... You need to have your hands free to do things. A tablet's not going to work for you. Um, you need something that you can throw in your pocket or carry on a lanyard or something or, or in your belt. That's important for many people. The other thing is that by having a PDA instead of having a smartphone, you are you're buying a device that doesn't require you to pay a monthly fee to go to use it. And many people don't have that the money to fund that kind of support. Uh, that that a smartphone provides. So, because smartphone bills are much higher than just a, a dumb phone bill, as we all know. That's really why I chose that device. Um, those two reasons. Um, I I very much hope that Apple will continue to support them. I've learned over the years, though, that um, the evolution of, of smartphones happens so fast that very quickly, a phone that was state of the art two years ago is an antique now. You can turn it off and use it as an iPod Touch, and you're good to go. So that's another trick I've learned over the years about how to leverage these devices, um, aside from that uh, monthly phone bill. 
that's an excellent point. I think we all have what deprecated technology that may still serve a great purpose if we just know how to apply it. Um, an iPod Touch so, is just an iPhone without the phone attached, without the phone. And a, an uh, iPhone separated from its, uh, from its phone company is an iPod Touch. So they all do the same things. They all run the same apps. And uh, it's a good thing to keep in mind because very often you can you can buy a like say an iPhone four cheaper than you can buy a new iPod Touch, and that's true for the that's true for the Android devices as well. They if you're an Android person, an old Android smartphone can can go go quite a long ways in uh, helping the people you work with support themselves. That's really an outstanding point, and a much more cost effective approach than maybe buying a brand new expensive device. Uh, to that end, you make a point in your uh, TSAS quarterly article that often, if it exists, the best technology to use as a, as a cognitive support is the technology that the individual already has. So we're talking about relatively high-end devices, whether it's an iPhone or an iPod Touch, even an older model, uh, is still a, a relatively expensive piece of technology uh, and uh, I don't want to say complicated, it's deliberately not complicated for the end user, but there's a lot of technology built in there. Uh, you describe uh, even cognitive supports that can come from a standard low end of the market flip phone, uh, an old school or dumb phone, if we want to use that terminology. Uh, what are some of the options that are there for a more run-of-the-mill budget cell phone? Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up because I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, back in the day, going back hmm, 15 years when I first started working with the old Palm Pilots, they seemed like revolutionary devices that could remind you to do things. You could keep your contact lists and your calendars on them. Uh, some of them allowed you to take pictures. Um, all of those, all of those features are available now on a flip phone. The cheap one you get, for, or the one you get for free when you when you sign a phone plan, and those phones are are more advanced technologically than the old Palm Pilots were. So, um, if I had run across a flip phone back then, I would have been I would have been stunned by how amazing it was. Um, I think the challenge for using a flip phone as a cognitive aid is that very often those devices, as cheap as they are, getting to the features like using it as a contact list or a calendar or a reminder tool, getting to those features requires a whole lot of steps. Um, there's a lot of finger tapping involved just to find your way through their menus, and that may be because their screens are tiny. It may be because they don't accept dedicated apps. Everything's sort of designed into the phone itself. But for many people with cognitive changes, it can be a challenge to use a flip phone um, as compared to a more expensive smartphone because the smartphone screen is so more so much more intuitive to use and you can come up with and bring in apps that are very simple for the for the end user to use that make it um, almost a snap to do the things that you would like to do um, so if you if you have a if you have a flip phone or a, let's say a dumb phone and I can make it work for you to do the things that you need to do let's stay there if I can't do that then we have to talk about moving to a more high-end device that can do the, that can have the set of apps that will support you in your independent functioning. And you're you're absolutely right. Once again, 
uh, I would argue that a lot of the standard menus built into the, the traditional flip phone uh, are difficult regardless of whether one has uh, any cognitive changes. And that was part of the selling point as a commercial device that made the iPod Touch and the iPhone so wildly popular uh, was that the, design, the interface was designed just to work uh, and to deliberately to be very simple to access. Uh, and I think we all benefit from that uh, in terms of using that as a cognitive support. Um, that ties in nicely too, I think, with uh, sort of the, the theoretical framework that you approach this question with. Uh, you lay out in your paper the human activity assistive technology model. Uh, and you describe it as an assessment and intervention model that looks at that, that interaction between the individual, their occupation, and the role of technology in supporting performance. Uh, maybe it's just because I was brought up in a PEOP uh, frame of mind that that interaction between the individual and the occupation is central to, to everything I think about. And so as a bit of a nerd overlapping the technology part of it was an easy sell. Um, and in the case of Todd that you described, those relationships are really apparent. And they really come through also in the way you described anyone using a mobile device uh, and the importance of selecting the right mobile device. So I'm curious, when it comes to matching individuals to the pieces of assistive technology, does that approach always work as well as it did with Todd? Or are there, is it trial and error? How well are you able to match people to the right device or vice versa? Well, there are there are certain things that a um, mobile device can do to support a person with cognitive behavioral challenges. They can't solve everybody's all of all the problems of every person. But one of the things that I think it's really important for an occupational therapist to pay attention to um, is not get distracted by whatever bells and whistles a device may have or whatever advertising goes on around a device, but to just recognize that for us using this tool to support one of our clients, the device is an assistive technology. So it's, it's no different. I, I, I compare it, when I talk to my students, I compare it to a motorized wheelchair. It has a, it has a role to play. It may not be the role to play that, this, that um, it's being advertised as, but your job is to find a way to, to use the tool so the person can think better and get through their day more functionally. So if you think of it that way, then the model you would use to track any assistive technology is the, is, um, the same model you would use for leveraging a smartphone to support someone. And the key pieces to that, and this is a thing that I run into a lot and I really wanted to touch on this, is um, we're taught as OTs, the HAP model is, is wonderful for that, that an important piece of assistive technology is the practitioner who discovers that fit, um, assesses the tool, trains the person to use it, and provides follow-along to make sure that things work out while the person's using the tool. Um, assistive technology, um, by federal law, is both the device and the person that supports the device. And I've learned over the years, especially when the iPad first came out a few years ago, people were buying those things like gumdrops and not knowing how to help their kid use it to get the work done that they wanted to get done. They were, they were reading the advertising. They were seeing that it seemed like this miraculous device. Now my kid's going to be able to talk. And it turned out there was a missing piece there, and that was people like you and me 
who could provide the AT expertise to bridge the device to the person. So I, I think I've sort of diverged from your actual question, Bill, but I, I wanted to make that point. Well, yes, but that's that's a really important point. And so to, to take that a step further, I'm curious. Uh, obviously, you've been working in this area uh, for quite some time. Are there... Uh, is there any specific training or uh, places you would recommend clinicians who are interested in using mobile devices for cognitive supports go to learn more to support their practice? Because you're right, we're, we're OTs. I, I think we intuitively think we know how to do this. Uh, but as with uh, working with power wheelchairs, it's not adequate to say I'm an OT. Uh, it's helpful to have a bit more in-depth training. Do you have any recommendations for anyone who wants to incorporate mobile technologies as cognitive supports into their practice? Yeah, this is this is still a problem to some extent because um, the tools are evolving so fast, and people that are comfortable using them um, are very often so busy they're not they don't have the time to disseminate their information. Uh, I give I give talks like once a month, and I've been doing that for ten years. And whenever I give a talk, people always say, "Where can I learn more?" Um, there there are a couple publications out, not mine, but by other people that talk about using these tools. Um, but I think if, if you're really going to seek out getting your your feet wet in, in this area and you're, and you're a little wary of doing it, the, an important thing would go to, if you go to one of your state uh, OTA, OT conferences or the national conference or to the RESNA conference or to the ATIA conference or to... Um, Closing the Gap, all of those conferences have, um, will always have at least a workshop about using these tools as cognitive behavioral supports. And that's a good place to get started. It, it won't necessarily be me talking, but someone else who knows what I, these things will be able to do that. Um, if, if you want to just explore a little bit about what I do, um, there's a website here at VCU where I've posted videos and a number of resources. Um, it's, it's the Autism Center of Excellence. Um, so if you, Google, if you Google VCU Autism Center, you would go directly to their website. And um, within that website, there's a tab for technology. All my information is there. And it's a, a, I, it might be a good place to get started. There's some really good handouts there, worksheets, like I said, short videos, and a pretty up-to-date list of the apps that I've tried and used to support people over the years. You know, there's like a million Apple apps and a million Android apps out there. I can't pretend to have tried them all, but the ones I have tried that I put on that list are ones that you can trust. And so that leads into uh, the first of our listener-submitted questions that I want to get into. We're sitting here talking about this issue of using uh, mobile devices and mobile apps as cognitive supports, but we haven't really said what that means. <laughs> you do a nice job of laying out some of them in your in your quarterly article, but we have a listener who wants to know if you can give some examples of what cognitive supports you can provide with a mobile device, and specifically, uh, what type of behavioral supports might be out there. Yeah, I, I tried to I tried to um, sort of stepwise address that in the, in a very short article that we did. But, um, and, and that's really a topic that's worth a two-day workshop, of course. But the, when I talk about cognitive impairment, typically what I'm talking about are people who have attention deficits, people who have memory impairments, um, people who have difficulties with task sequencing, 
people have difficulties um, finding their way in um, unfamiliar environments, and people who just get lost in the middle of their day and forget to, what to do next. So I drive the, my own interventions based on what people tell me they're having trouble with. And fortunately, these tools can support those people in doing all of those things. And all the way back to the old Palm Pilot, and fortunately still a key part of all of these devices um, is the ability to set reminder alarms to remember to do things across your day. You and I might have one reminder a week or a day that reminds us to do something that's not common to our routine, like maybe you have a doctor's appointment that you want to make sure you make. People who are cognitively impaired will use that same reminder tool um, as many as 10, 15, 20 times a day to keep them on task because they're not going to remember from moment to moment what the next thing is that they do. And I've worked with folks who are severely memory impaired who have, who have as many as 30 or 40 uh, reminders going off during the day. Um, these people live entirely in the moment. They don't know what they just did, and they don't know what they're going to do next. And a tool like this can, can really be a life-changing tool just by using that reminder app. The second thing that I typically uh, think about after I've gotten people comfortable with using the device to remember to do things is I think about task sequencing, and that's because I work with a lot of people who are trying to learn a new job, and any of us learning a new job um, miss steps as we go. Um, people who are cognitively impaired are going to miss a lot of steps as they go. So the thing that I've been most happy about recently is that um, these tools offer uh, video camera capabilities. And that means I can make a video, uh, instructional videos showing how to do the task, and the person can use that as a video model as they perform the task. That's a wonderful thing. Uh, video modeling has um, mountains of evidence supporting it as a learning tool. And now that you have that carried around in your hand, it's just been an amazing uh, thing to have. There's other ways to do task sequencing supports, of course. You can use slideshow apps. You can just use uh, to-do to list, all sorts of things like that. Depending on what the person's needs are, you can um, slide up or down that scale and give them exactly the support they're looking for. You can use those same task sequencing supports, whether it's a video or a slideshow or whatever, what have you, to help people find their way in the community. Um, I've used them successfully as social stories where a person's trying to uh, negotiate a stressful social situation, and the video shows them how to do that successfully. For instance, walking in and buying an ice cream cone, or talk, uh, going to your boss and asking for something. The, that works beautifully as well. Um, I'm, I'm rattling on, but the one other piece I no, want, no. Um, one other piece I want to comment on there. When I've when I've helped someone remember to do things and manage complex tasks in their everyday life, they're hooked. They, they want to keep using this device because they're no longer needing to be nagged and they no longer feel like sort of a constant failure in getting through their day. So it's an incredibly empowering thing just to have those two pieces in place. The third piece has to do with managing mood, emotion, um, behavior, and there's just a wonderful range of um, apps available to help people manage those things. Everything from uh, relaxation apps that people can, can use when they get in a corner at a break time and they want to de-stress, to um, behavioral ma management apps that allow you to set goals for yourself and get rewards when you achieve those goals, 
um, just using gaming, just using games as a way to distract yourself from the stresses of your day can be really powerful. There are deep breathing apps out there. There are apps that allow you to track your mood and report them um, over, over time to your doctor. There's just wonderful tools there that fit into the behavior modeling piece of this uh, puzzle. And once, once you've covered those three areas, you can, you can move in all sorts of different directions. But to, be, to bring it all back to, to, to a summary, I guess I'd say, in, in my study, one of the things that I was very careful about and that I think we all have to be super careful about is you don't want to overwhelm a client with a whole lot of different things that they need to do on the device because you're trying to simplify their life, not make it more complicated. So the average number of people in our study, uh, the average number of apps used by people in our study was three or four. Um, the difference between the way th that and the way we use our apps is that for each of those three or four apps that they used, one for reminders, one maybe for task sequencing, another for behavioral management, was that they used them very robustly. So as I said, they might have 20 mm -hmm. reminders a day. They might have five or six uh, videos to watch at different times when they need to do certain different things. That's, that's the, in my, in my opinion, an appropriate way to use these tools. And that's interesting. It, it really follows along nicely with the app model, which is uh, small programs that are intended to do one thing very well with a very intuitive interface as opposed to a more traditional application or program like a sprawling Microsoft Office suite that tries to do uh, everything for everyone. You're talking about uh, really robustly using uh, fairly... I don't want to say simple, but uh, apps that are narrow in scope that do one thing very well uh, to support people. That's exactly uh, because right. Yeah, that's exactly right, but I, I agree so wholeheartedly with that, and I love that model because it allows you to build a menu of things that will work for a particular person, and that menu may be very different for another person. But because these things are so task-specific and so well-focused, it's easy to... It's easy to um, pick and choose among them. Now, uh, I, I wonder then along those lines, so you're using a, you have a vast toolkit obviously of, of tools to choose from when it comes to technology at large and specific apps for any one individual uh, to use as a support. But, uh, and part of the goal, I realize, is to keep that interface as simple as possible for that individual. Um, I'm wondering then if there are if there are specific apps, and I realize you just described sort of the, the framework of how you, you know, prefer to start and lay out and develop through the types of apps that you have. Are there any in particular that have been uh, just over-the-top well-received, better than you anticipated, or, or ones that you've attempted that maybe haven't panned out as well as you thought? Yeah, I, I can I can discuss a few of those. Um, I'd be happy to do that. Um, one of the things I want to comment on there, though, is that because people have different um, sensory issues and have different um, motoric issues as well, some, and also communication issues, there are, are apps that can be leveraged for someone who's a non-speaker. For instance, a reminder app that talks rather than um, prints out what what your reminder is. 
you want to be able to access those for people who need those kinds of things. Same thing would work for a person who is blind. So you want to you want to have in your back pocket not just one reminder app, but a reminder app that can, but a series of reminder apps that can allow you to help a person who may be blind or help a person who may um, have have a motoric difficulty that makes it difficult for them to respond and to a tap. Let me let me just comment on just reminders for a minute. One one of them that I like a whole lot is called Bug Me. It's an it's both an Apple and an Android app. It's a two dollar app. And what's wonderful about that is that um, it really is an electronic sticky note with a reminder alarm. So you can append to that reminder a photograph or a drawing um, and you can you can have it speak out loud. So someone who is a non reader for whatever reason can benefit from using that app as a reminder. The same thing uh, I keep in mind when I'm trying to do test sequencing. And we've been we've been in the last year there have been some really fascinating um, task sequencing, picture prompting, speak out loud, uh, slideshow apps that have come on the market. I'll just list a couple of them. One is called the Functional Planning System. It actually allows you to, to build either a picture slideshow that walks you through a complex task or a video that walks you through a complex task. Um, you can build a library of videos within that planning system, give the, each of them a name, and to make it easier for people to find it. That's a $5 app. Um, there's another that I've been using for, oh my gosh, ever since the iPod Touch came out, I guess, uh, called StoryKit, which is a free app. Um, that app is designed as a tool to let people build talking picture books for their children. That's what it was designed for. But it works so well as an opportunity to build talking picture book instructional slideshows. And that's how I, um, I've used it with a number of our clients, and it's just been really, really powerful. Um, you can have the, the, each page of the book talk to you. You can have each page of the book have a picture in it. You can append other kinds of drawings or instruction onto it. And it's, it's just very versatile. And for a free app, it's, it's been a, just a wonderful thing. Most of the other slideshow apps function similarly to that. Some of them look prettier, but none of them do a better job than StoryKit does. That's to, excellent. Go ahead. The, the, I just wanted to comment on um, the, uh, the Veterans Administration and the Department of Defense have been collaborating since the beginning of the uh, Iraq and, and Afghanistan conflicts on the, the building of apps to support veterans with cognitive problems, uh, mild traumatic brain injury, PTSD, those kinds of things. And they have built just a wonderful suite of free apps for both Android and Apple devices that um, allow you to track your mood, allow you to report to your doctor how you're doing, uh, give cues back to you about how to manage your um, everyday stresses. One of, one of them is called Mood Tracker. Another one is PTSD Coach. And there's, and there's one called Behavior Tracker Pro. And the, the, there, are, there are probably a dozen more um, that, that you can get off, off the, either the uh, Google, Google Play or the um, Apple Store. Um, free, designed specifically for veterans, but I've used them with young people with autism just as successfully. Those are excellent, and I can tell you I'm already trying to make note here. Uh, and for anyone following along online, I'll try to post links to as many of these as possible, and I'm keeping a list for myself. 
which perhaps I should set a reminder for myself right now. I will try to add to OT Connections later uh, should anyone want to, to access that list. Plus, as you mentioned, you have your own website at the uh, through VCU, uh, which has been posted uh, to our chat conversation. That's vcuautismcenter.org, and I assume most of those can be found uh, listed there as well. That's right. The, 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 VA, the VA suite, if you wanted to look at all of their apps, um, their website um, is the letter T, the number 2T2Health.org. And if you, if you just tap that in, you open to their website, and all of their apps are listed there. Excellent. Uh, I've got that one recorded, and we'll also post that uh, in the chat for uh, anyone who may have missed it. Um, I'm curious. So you're, you, you've got obviously a, a great suite of tools uh, available uh, that you've listed and that you've personally used and tested. Um, but I'm curious. Then, in the process, you also you do a great job in the article of laying out uh, the process uh, of how the of how this part of an intervention can be uh, implemented and the stages that go into implementing a cognitive support. Uh, intervention, but I'm curious: is there anything? Have you noticed any trends or tendencies in clients that help you predict their ability to really internalize and take over using these cognitive support apps? Because I assume ultimately the goal is not to have uh, an OT or a job coach. Your goal is to reduce uh, the uh, dependence or the need for them over time with the cognitive supports. So, have you seen anything that helps you predict who's going to do it? Uh, who's going to be successful in taking over and using those cognitive supports independently? What, what's been a real uh, gratifying surprise for me, and th this is not um, going to cover every single person that I've ever worked with, but over, over a couple hundred people over the years that I've worked with, what I've been surprised with, and this is for folks with brain injury, people with uh, cognitive changes related to multiple sclerosis, people with autism, people with other kinds of changes, what I've seen that's been pretty exciting is that the very first step um, of this assessment process is when I sit down with the person and maybe with a caregiver and ask the question, what are the things that people have to nag you about? And they make a <laughs> about the things that mom has to nag me about. And that's what I address first. So. You want to be. You want to. So I use a reminder app, and we set up reminders to so the device does the nagging. The person has control over the device. The, the mom, mom gets to take a break, back away, and in an overwhelming number of cases, people you would never imagine would buy into this. People who've been very sort of tied into human support for you know since they were babies, um, when they discover that. They're in control of being nagged, and they can manage that. The self-efficacy that comes along with that, there's, there's something that changes people, and they fall in love with these devices, and everything else I want to do with them is gravy because they've already bought into it. It's, it's just uh, the power of not being nagged. That is fantastic. I think that's something we can all appreciate, especially someone uh, whose life is largely dictated by being nagged and being reminded and of what they have to do and when uh, to be able to take that control, I can, uh, gosh, I can only imagine how empowering and uh, and powerful that is. 
uh, so it must be an incredibly gratifying second session when the person comes back to you and you get to see the result of that. Um, so I think you just introduced a new question into every one of my evals going forward, <laughs> and I appreciate that. It's, it's a great um, staff. So uh, along those lines, then, uh, I hinted at it a moment ago, uh, but you describe in the paper four uh, specific strategies that you used when working with Todd, uh, and those were task management support, that fading supervision that we've already talked about a little bit, uh, managing challenging behaviors, and those video-based educational supports uh, that you've talked about a bit in terms of uh, some specific apps. Now, are those pretty common strategies that you use with everyone or just part of a larger toolkit? Um, just looking at the study that Todd was a part of, the 50 people in that study, there were people in that study who only needed reminders to do things. There were people in the study who needed much more complex supports than Todd used, um, and it just really was driven by what their challenges were. Um, there were some people in the study who would in the, would have been called uh, people with Asperger's a couple years ago and were pretty high-functioning, um, already knew how to use computers, were comfortable with those kinds of technologies, and maybe needed only a few kinds of supports. There were also um, young people who were um, had dual diagnosis with um, different kinds of developmental disabilities along with autism, who were nonverbal, um, who were, um, had never really had any successful social interactions with others, and who were trying to manage a job. And those people required uh, much more, many more hours from me and much more support from the device. But, so I really, I really would just have to say that you use your skills as an occupational therapist and as an assistive technology practitioner to figure out um, in collaboration with your client, what they want to do, what they need to do, and how the tool may support doing it. And I, I think you summed that up beautifully. That is what being an occupational therapist <laughs> and an ATP is about. Uh, and we're really just talking about a specific application of uh, one class of intervention to the exact same OT process that I think all OT practitioners try to try to do. Um, yeah, that's I've, what I'm trying to uh, convey, and, and, and giving me the opportunity to write the articles, I really appreciate that because it's important to, to keep in mind that with so many of the things that we do as OTs, we know how to do this. We just have to clear our minds and recognize that this tool is just like any other tool, and the person's needs are just like the other the needs of other people we've assessed. Uh, we, we approach it in the same step-by-step -step manner and uh, try to solve one problem at a time. And I couldn't agree more. And as I told you uh, offline prior to the call, uh, that that article and, and that point has really helped me and has changed the way I practice with uh, people with uh, with cognitive conditions, uh, regardless of whether they're using a mobile device or not. It was a great reminder. Uh, as to exactly what it is that we're trying to do. Um, I will remind anyone uh, on the call, it uh, looks like we have a number of listeners out there. If you have any other questions that you would like to address to Tony, uh, feel free to type them into the chat section here uh, or interject it at any point. Feel free to, to jump in here with any questions that you may have. We are coming near the end of our time, so uh, if you do have a question, you'll want to get it in sooner rather than later. Um, 
Tony, I'm curious too. Uh, we've talked about some of the, the great clinical merits of what you've done uh, in that quarterly and about some of the science behind it. On a personal note, uh, you painted a really compelling picture of Todd. He sounds like an intelligent, intelligent, relatable guy who's working to overcome some pretty serious difficulties. And he obviously had some great social supports around him before and during the study. And it sounds like he was really successful in your program. And I'm wondering, to the extent that you can tell us, uh, have you kept up with Todd and how's he doing now? Yeah, I've been keeping up with all these guys. Um, it, it, I, I'm really lucky because um, we were able to find, for the study over the course of the five years that we did it, um, a cohort of, of 50 people um, in the central Virginia area, um, really within, I guess, what you call my catchment area, that um, have um, were in the study, uh, enjoy being a part of it, and we've been able to stay in touch. He's, he's still working at the library. I don't, he has not changed uh, his role since we started. I, I checked in with him, um, I guess, in the middle of the summer, and he is still using the same device and still, um, I think I mentioned in the article that um, he, was, he got to a point very quickly where he was remembering to do things without needing the reminders, but kept using the device as a way to just re to sort of remind him to be reminded. Uh, he liked having the device uh, keeping him sure of himself uh, being on track. And for whatever reason, and this may be something that's uh, specific to his particular condition, um, but he still likes to have the device reminding him to get through his day step by step, um, even though I think he could probably get by without it. And I'm hmm. um, some people Some people grow their way out of the device, and I think that's what we hope for. Um, but many people I've worked with, like Todd, um, when I go back and check in with them, they are still using it exactly in exactly the way we originally trained them, and they like that routine. That's become part of their routine, and as you know, folks with autism very often like routine. So that's kind of cool. Um, I'll give you one other quick example. There's one young man in the study who um, means a lot to me. He's a hospital orderly. Um, he's nonverbal. Uh, he's, he's the kind of young man that I would have questioned at some point in my career if he would ever be able to hold a job. Um, the device has been remarkable for him, and when I saw it, um, because he's an orderly, he works he works in some pretty messy environments. Um, the case he had was dirty, and uh, the device looked like it could stand an overhaul. So I asked him, "Can I get you another one of these things? You know, it's not a problem for me. I can get you another one, and you can you can just swap this one out." And he would not let me take it from him. It's become <laughs> that much of what he does. Uh, and that really touched me to see um, how important the tool became for him. That's really outstanding. <laughs> uh, I I think it's really impressive. And you're right, it may, uh, it may be that this, this population is particularly uh, predisposed to routine and, and may do particularly well with these devices. But you're absolutely right that uh, once any one of us settles into, I shouldn't say settles into, but finds a routine that works for us and helps us get through our day, uh, it can be terrifying to think of changing it. And if it works well, why why break it? Uh, I like to tell my clients all of the time that as far as I'm concerned, modified independent is independent. Um, that uh, if you're using a device and you're satisfied with using the device and you can get done what you need to get done, then that's independent in my mind. Uh, now, if the individual wants to move off of the device, then we can, of course, work toward uh, that objective too. 
but it's great that you have an intervention that people are continuing to use down the road and, and that they internalize and find so rewarding. Um, one of our oh, – go you right ahead. You just described something that I have conversations with with my students very often, and you said it much better than I could have said. Huh. Um, the, the the idea that modified independence is independence, and I, I completely agree with you. I, uh, some Sometimes uh, parents or caregivers – look a little bit askance at this kind of an intervention and they think, but then he's never going to learn to do this on his own. And my message is the same as yours just was. He's doing it on his own. He just has a tool to help him to get there. Exactly. And who among us doesn't use a tool and we need to? Um, one of our listeners has asked uh, for a link to the the article, the the larger research uh, that you referred to, and I know you mentioned it earlier, was that the paper in the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders? Yeah, it, it's um, it's let's see, it's I printed out just before I came in here the online version, which came out um, last September, and the the actual version came out this May, and it's the the title of it is reducing the need for personal supports among workers with autism using an iPod Touch as an assistive technology, delayed randomized control trial. Um, and so it was in the May issue of uh, JADD. And for anyone following along online, which is where we got that question, uh, I just posted the link via PubMed uh, to, to find that article. Uh, and if you have access to the journal through Springer, you can pull uh, the full text that way. At the very least, you can get uh, the abstract uh, and some information about the paper that way. Uh, and again, I will make a point of including that in our OT Connections uh, section for TSIS for anyone who wants access. I will provide the link uh, to the PubMed uh, and Springer sources to, to pull that down if anyone is interested. So, Tony, I have uh, one other question along those lines, if you don't mind, to just take a step back from the intervention itself. Um, this is sort of a personal, selfish question that I like to ask all of our guests. You've described a really nice, uh, uh, by nice I don't mean just meaningful and useful, but uh, a really effective uh, research plan that you've been working on for quite some time. You've mentioned that these are uh, technologies that you know, have been around for decades and that you've been working with for quite a while. Can you describe for us just briefly, uh, a bit about your role as a scientist, as someone generating evidence in OT. Uh, maybe a bit about what launched you on this path and uh, and how you've developed such an effective uh, research entity uh, and research practice. How many hours do you have? Um, <laughs> well, we've got about eight minutes if you can do it in that. <laughs> I can I can I appreciate you asking that question um, I, because this is for some reason this is a very personal sort of mission for me. Um, I know exactly the day that um, I first t turned down this road. Um, no was, kidding. I was I was working as um, I, I ran a day rehab program for adults with brain injury in Charlottesville, Virginia. We had um, it was a multidisciplinary team. We've been running it for about a year. Um, we came across the old palm, black and white Palm Pilots, and that reminder feature that I've been talking about seemed that it might hold some potential to help people not be nagged. So 
I tried it out with a couple clients, and um, one day we were having a uh, staff meeting at the end of the afternoon, and the wife of one of our clients um, stormed into the meeting, and that's usually a bad sign. But <laughs> she came in. Uh, he was a lawyer who had had a car crash, and since his injury had, had lived at home, was not driving, was not working, uh, had sort of become very isolated. Um, he had been in our program for about three months. We tried him out with a Palm Pilot. She comes into the room, and she says, I just want to say this. I appreciate all the work that all of you all of you clinicians have been doing with my husband um, in the time that he's been coming here. But, and she pulled the, his Palm Pilot out of her pocketbook, and she said, this is what's changed his life. Now, wow. now he gets up in the morning, and he takes his pills. He takes the dog for a walk. He calls his friends, and they go play golf. Um, I don't need to be his mom anymore. And this is the this is the phrase that changed my life. She said, I'm, I'm no longer his mom. I feel like I can finally begin to think of myself as his wife again. And the reason that was so life-changing for me is I know as a long-time practicing therapist working with folks who have severe cognitive problems that very little of what we do helps a whole lot. Um a lot of what we do is hand-holding and hoping for the best. And this did something. So within six months, I had written a research proposal to try these things out with folks with brain injury. And from that moment on, I haven't looked back. Um, fortunately, or maybe unfortunately, the devices have moved faster than I have. And it's been a total party for the last 10 years trying to uh, keep up with the potential these things have to help us. That is uh, really <laughs> I, I, fantastic. Seems an understatement. I'm sitting here with actual goosebumps from uh, just the power of that story. Uh, working with clients very similar to the one that you described, uh, that is really just an incredible moment. And I'm thrilled uh, for your client back then and for his wife and for her putting that so well uh, that you've really done the entire profession a service. So I'm grateful for it. Um, and really, I think that's about as good a note as any to say that we've reached the end of our time. Uh, once again, I want to thank our guest, uh, Dr. Tony Gentry. This has been really just a, a fantastic hour. Uh, I'm grateful for your work, for your quarterly, and for your taking the time to, to share with us this evening. The article is Mobile Technologies as Vocational Supports for Workers with Cognitive Behavioral Challenges. Uh, Tony Gentry, Associate Professor in OT at VCU, thank you so much for joining us. Bill, thank you so much. This has been so much fun this this afternoon, and um, we should talk more often. Uh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You can count on it. Uh, thank you as well to everyone who joined us live by phone and online, and for those uh, who submitted questions throughout the, the course of the chat. Uh, if you have additional questions uh, about uh, using mobile apps, mobile devices as cognitive supports, please do log on to the TSIS forum on OT Connections to continue the conversation. I'll look for you there. The easiest way to find our OT Connections forum is to go to aota.org slash TSIS and click the link in the resources section. Again, that's aota.org slash TSIS. Look under resources and click the technology SIS discussion forum. Also, please plan to join us in December when Robin Jansen of Indiana University will join us to discuss her upcoming TSIS quarterly on innovative uses of 3D printing in occupational therapy. 
That quarterly will be published on December 1st, and the virtual chat will occur uh, later that week. Until then, on behalf of the Technology Special Interest Section, I'm Bill James. Thank you so much for joining us. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.